Hey everyone, this is Tristan. And this is Aza. One of the things that makes AI so vexing is the multiple horizons of harm that it affects simultaneously. We sometimes hear about this divide or schism in the responses to the immediate risks that AI poses today and the longer-term and emerging risks that AI can pose tomorrow. In those camps, there's the AI bias and AI ethics community, which is typically focused on the immediate risks, and there's the AI safety community, which is typically focused on the longer-term risks. But is there really a divide between these concerns? About this notion of schism, it makes for good headlines. That's Dr. Joy Bulamwini, founder of the Algorithmic Justice League and author of a new book called Unmasking AI, My Mission to Protect What is Human in a World of Machines. I've heard this, there are camps, we got AI safety on one end, we got AI ethics on the other hand, we got the doomers, the gloomers, all of these things. I think it makes for interesting headlines, and I see it less as a schism and more as a spectrum of concerns. I think there are immediate harms, emerging harms, and longer-term harms. And I think the way you address the longer-term harms is by attending to what is immediate. Dr. Joy conducted the breakthrough research that demonstrated to the world how gender and racial bias gets embedded into machine learning models. Her work has been incredibly influential. She's helped set the agenda in the halls of power. And you may have seen the documentary on her work called Coded Bias, which is available to stream on Netflix. So we are absolutely thrilled to have her on the podcast. And I think the thing we all agree on is the urgency of all these risks makes it imperative that the people who bring different perspectives can come together and talk and find common ground. Dr. Joy, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So I want to get into your research, but I actually want to bring listeners to where you and I got to meet, which was at a little meeting we had in San Francisco with President Biden. And I really want to say that I think that you had more impact in that meeting than everyone else because you told the most compelling story uh, about Robert Williams. So I thought we'd start there with what was the story you told uh, President Biden that relates to your work? Oh, well, that's so kind of you to say. There were many impactful people and conversations that we had, and I was really grateful for the administration really taking the time to deep dive. So for that meeting, I brought in two photos, and I you know, passed it around to President Biden, Governor Newsom. I think you also got a few of those I photos. I did, I still have it in my desk. And so one of those photos shows a man named Robert Williams, and he has two small girls who are his daughters. And he was actually arrested in front of his daughters and his wife because of a false facial recognition match. And then he was held in a holding cell for over 30 hours. And this was also around his birthday. <laughs> I mean, it just gets worse and worse. And so it was really making sure that we were putting a face on AI harms, because it's so easy to talk about it in broad terms. You'll say a sentence, right? AI can be biased, or there could be racial discrimination, right? Or it's being used in the criminal legal system in harmful ways. And so I really wanted to say, who are the people who are being harmed by AI, those who are convicted or condemned due to algorithmic systems? And what impact do these types of interactions that involve AI as a witness have on people's lived experience. And so 
sharing that photo around to humanize AI harms in the conversation was a launching point for President Biden to then ask, is the reason he was falsely identified because he was Black? And that really got to the heart of the matter. And it was also an opportunity to share that not only do we have documented racial bias, we have documented gender bias, documented age bias, documented ability bias, colorism, when it comes to facial recognition technologies. And then if we're thinking about AI systems more broadly, think of an ism, it's probably been encoded in some type of AI system being deployed, and it could be deployed near you, right? So at your child's school, at a hospital. And I think this notion that no one is immune is really important. I just want to say, actually, as a testament to your work, it's so true that you know we had someone from our team actually give a talk at a global semiconductor conference about the risks of AI. And the first thing that everybody asked about was algorithmic bias. And it really speaks to, like, you've created an agenda of concerns that, like you said, maybe really wasn't there maybe six years ago, and now really is. And I think that's just something really to celebrate we should probably get into the the core here. Um, if we're just sort of setting the table for listeners, people think you know computers are running on you know just code, and so therefore the system's got to be more objective or more neutral. How do gendered, racial, and other biases find their way into AI? Sure. So the approach to AI that is currently very popular uses machine learning, and so machines are learning from what large data sets that are used to learn various patterns around the world, patterns of what a human face looks like, patterns of what a sentence or an essay right, looks like. And so you can have large language models like the kind of AI models that power chat GPT, or you can have AI systems like the type that power facial recognition systems used by law enforcement. And so where does the bias come in? Where does the discrimination come in? When we've looked at data sets that are open for scrutiny, when it comes to face data sets, as I was doing my research, I encountered so many data sets that were overwhelmingly of lighter-skinned individuals and overwhelmingly male individuals. One of the gold standard databases, if you permit me to get into some technical weeds a little bit, right? Labeled faces in the wild, uh, LFW was the gold standard. And when you looked at it, it was about, I want to say, over 80% lighter-skinned individuals, uh, 70% or more male. And so it wasn't so surprising if the measures of success themselves were skewed. It meant that the field as a whole had a false sense of progress. So was facial recognition advancing in some domains? Yes. Was it advancing the same across all demographics and populations? No. And at the time I was doing the research, it was very rare to find any papers that would disaggregate numbers. So typically you would say, here's the gold standard data set and here's the overall performance on that data set. So what I did with my MIT research was say, what would happen if we changed the test, right? If the test included more women, if the test included more people of color, would the results change? And so I decided to focus on gender classification, binary gender classification, uh, to be more specific, not because gender is binary, but most of the gender classifiers we were looking at had that gender binary 
And it turned out that with a more inclusive data set, which I called the Pilot Parliament's benchmark, when we tested systems from IBM, Microsoft, Face++, later on Amazon, and uh, Clarify, we found that there was indeed substantial bias along skin type, along gender, and very importantly, at the intersection. And so the gold standards turned out to be pyrite, you know, fool's gold. And it wasn't just a lesson for facial analysis systems like gender classification or age estimation, but really any human-centered AI model. So think about AI models being developed to detect cancer, to predict the formation of plaque for heart disease. You know, one of the things I think your work does so incredibly well is it makes these invisible things visible. Actually, it, it does more, I think. The way you communicate, it makes them visceral. People care. They can see it. They can feel it. And so far, we've been focusing on the harms of, I think, what Danielle Allen, who's the political scientist and hard professor, calls Generation 1 or 1.0 AI. You know, Dario, the CEO of Anthropic, says in the next two to three years we'll hit AGI. And I think what he means by that is it can do the economic work of a normal human being across most tasks. And Sam Altman says superintelligence in four years, et cetera. So I'm just curious. I want to make a big distinction with what you just said there because I want to be sure I'm clear with what you're saying. You're saying AGI, and then you're saying AGI being AI systems being able to do a lot of the economic labor that's currently done with humans. Though AGI Mm -hmm. can also be understood and is often said to be, as you were going forward, right, with super intelligence. So I want to make sure we are very precise about what we are talking about because I don't see super intelligence the way maybe some of the people you've described uh, see it. And I worry about that with algorithmic systems. And we don't have to have AI systems flagging you as a terrorist suspect or flagging you, imagine a drone with a gun and facial recognition, right? And you don't necessarily have to have super intelligence, right, for military applications of AI to be immediately deadly. So I want to be careful in the conversation to not necessarily accept all of the premises, but still have the conversation. And so to me, this notion of super intelligence, I'm very cautious about buying into the notion of sentient systems, which we do not have and I do not see us having in the next few years. And uh, that being said, we can still acknowledge that there are very powerful AI systems that can absolutely do uh, economic labor. One of the questions that we ask ourselves is, can you have an aligned AI in a misaligned system? Of course, the answer is, no, if no matter how well you align your AI, if it's in a misaligned system, it's going to cause you know harm from that misalignment. And it reminds me of that phrase of you know if you make life better for women, you make life better for everyone. If you make life better for black and brown people, you make life better for everyone. As 
you know, the power of AI continues to increase, the cost of our misaligned system will also increase. And so maybe this is the wake-up call for, for humanity. I will say the term alignment and misalignment, I find difficult to use because if by misalignment you mean AI that's discriminatory, if by misalignment, right, you mean that AI that is spewing hate speech, right, if by misalignment you are using a somewhat safe word to describe very harmful things, I lean towards saying the more harmful things that aren't aligned because alignment can also look like what type of goals you wanted to achieve. So, and I've seen the evolution of discourse in this space, right? We didn't always talk about responsible AI or AI safety, or I've been hearing more recently beneficial AI, but I... I've seen that those terms feel more comfortable for some people to engage in a conversation than saying AI racism, AI discrimination, or misogyny, right? And so when I hear the term AI alignment, I'm always asking, what do you mean? Is alignment a softer way of talking about algorithmic harms, algorithms of oppression, algorithms of erasure, algorithms of exploitation. Let's be clear about what we're talking about. So if we can be more specific in our language, I think that also helps us to be more specific with the types of guardrails we put in place. So when I hear something like alignment and I look at where that type of language is being used, it concerns me that it is used to remove oneself from the more challenging societal conversations. Uh, I'm curious how you see this in relationship to incentives. Because the more we hype the tech, the more quickly there is an incentive for companies to replace people on their staff with tech that is overhyped in terms of its ability, which would then accelerate all the places where it's biased and has all these problems. Because I think, just to say one last thing, I think there's a unifying frame here actually in a lot of your thinking and our thinking, which is noticing that social media was also an AI that had all of these harmful effects. And we haven't yet even gone back and fixed first contact social media with AI, just like we have not gone back and fixed many of the systems that you're talking about that are not safe and effective, that are, that are causing harms right now. And now we're racing to scale and deploy these even more powerful systems without actually going back and fixing them. And I'm curious your reactions to that and how you see incentives playing a role here. I do think at the end of the day, we cannot rely on self-regulation. I do think this is why laws are necessary and this is why legislation is necessary and this is why litigation will be ongoing. As somebody from a computer science background initially, I very much dismissed policy and advocacy and my initial approach to some of these issues was a very technical approach which is, okay, we got biased data sets, let's make the data sets more inclusive. That might address algorithmic bias, but it doesn't get to the algorithmic harm of accurate systems can be abused. Right now, I, I see a contradiction. Companies saying, some companies, not all, but many leading companies, you know, saying that 
we should pause AI. AI poses an existential risk more than climate change, even so. And yet, despite claiming that the risks are so high, nonetheless, moving full speed ahead as if they have no choice. There are choices, and there are also profit incentives, right? And so there is a benefit to hyping AI because you then get to be the creators of this powerful system that even you do not necessarily fully understand. So there is a bit of a marketing mystique that also helps where it's almost trying to, it's more saying, we don't know what's going to happen. It could be harmful. Yes, regulate, etc. But then when it comes to putting in safeguards, putting in guardrails that could cut into potential profits, you're going to be misaligned, right, with what the profit interest is and where the public interest is. And so I do fear corporate capture, of regulatory processes and also legislative processes. Do I think corporations shouldn't be part of the conversation? No. We need all of the stakeholders in the room. Should they hold the pen of legislation? Absolutely not. And I think we also shouldn't be so bought into the idea that only they can understand these systems to then make themselves the only people who can then propose the quote-unquote solutions, which is another system they sell, right? So I think we have to be really mindful of that. So um, the first thing I relate to is what you said of as a computer scientist, you know, you saw these problems and your instinct was, I'm going to grab the tools that I know how to grab, which is like, oh, it's a code and data problem. Let's grab the code and data solution tools and like let's put the tools in. You know, identifying a lot of the social media problems as very much a design problem. Like, oh, it's designed in this way that I can clearly see is drawing up social validation and addiction and sort of social proof and social pressure. And it's just playing with all these psychological levers. And I'm like, oh, that's a design problem. And I'm a design thinker. So I'm going to pull out my design tool and say, hey, Google, when I was inside of Google, why don't you just change the design? <laughs> because it could just work so much better if we don't do those things and if we set some standards inside of the Google design standard code you know, base. But then what I think we both came to here, and I'm hearing you say at least, is it's really about the incentives and you need to get out of your tool set and say we have to have regulation that changes the incentives or something that changes what the incentives are because the incentives are what drive the action. But there's an interesting place here where actually I'm not sure that we do agree, which is, um, or at least I'm, I'm interested to, to dig deeper, which is the belief that the companies are hyping the risk because as, as sort of a, I heard you saying is like surely they don't believe it's this risky because if they did why would they be building it? But I think there is an explanation for that, which is that they they are worried that that power does confer advantage to those who do if they can control it, and up until the point where you you know if you can control it, then continuing to build it so that you have access to that power before they worry the. You know the non-good guys have access to that power. I'm not saying they're the good guys, but I think that there is a good faith interpretation of their fear about the power of what they're building. And we, we do talk to a lot of the AI safety people inside the labs, and the ones that we talk to, at least, I, I have viewed as good faith in their concern that what they're doing could be really, really catastrophic. 
But then it comes back to the incentives where they don't have a way to stop everyone else from building it. And so they're more, it's not so much that they're super powerful, more like they're helpless and caught. And then there's this, sec- this last part, which you're naming, which is correct, which is the regulation that they're proposing would cement their concentration of power where only they have access to build these sophisticated systems, which would be a whole other set of problems. Yes, we do disagree sometimes, and that's fine. So to the point where I think there is a bit of disagreement, I separate institutions from individuals. And my experience with the Gender Shades uh, project, right, so we audited AI systems from leading tech companies, and I had an opportunity to talk shop with the people who created some of these systems And the conversations I would have with the tech teams and AI researchers within companies were very different conversations than what I would have with um, executives or people from the communications team or people from the legal team, right? And so I think I can agree with you that there are people who have true and legitimate concerns about the risk of AI within companies and outside of companies. I do not necessarily see the institution that houses all of these individuals, the companies, then actually taking the steps that would put more belief behind what they're saying. So if you're saying there's a pause letter and you have 30,000 people sign it, but they're not pausing, right? I'm saying your actions are literally not matching your stated concerns, point blank. And the counter for that is, well, if we don't do it, someone else is going to do it, as if we are somehow helpless, which we are not, right? The motivation is the profit. If we have that power first, right? Yes, you can say maybe you can prevent other bad actors if you are the arbiter of determining who's bad or good, and it's more complex than that. But there's also the power in having tools that you will sell to others, and that is not surprisingly, these are for-profit companies. So I still think there's a contradiction in what companies are saying and the actions they are taking, and the contradiction is because they want to make the profit. I'm curious what you would say. Like, <laughs> I'll take the opposite side that I, that I normally am on, and I'll, I'll sort of be one of the people that, that we talk to inside of the AI companies, and they'll say, look, I am really worried about this technology, but I'm aware that in the end of the day, it's just matrix multiplication, just a whole bunch of it. So we can't stop people yet from building it. So I have an obligation to build and build it in a safer way than those others might. Also, there are other countries that are going to be building it that don't share our values, like a Russia or a China or North Korea. And because this new technology confers new power, if we don't build it, then we will be beaten by those that do. And also, I I think I have good values, and if I don't build it, then I don't even have a seat at the table. So then it's irrelevant. Therefore, I don't have a choice. The best I can do is tell people how dangerous it is because that way I can get someone else, like the government, to help me coordinate because we all have to stop at the same time. If we don't all stop, it doesn't work. There's so many assumptions there that you have to think through. Great, great. 
Yeah, let's let's break it down. Let's let's, let's break it down. I think this is so so critically important, Dr. Joy. I'm so excited we're talking about this. Again, I spoke to many people in the biometrics industry, right? Where trying to think of the ones I'm able to share. We have bias in the wild stories, et cetera. So when our research came out, we had people saying, I worked on quality assurance and I knew that these issues existed, right? But it would have made my job harder to actually address it, right? So I don't necessarily buy that building tools that would remove racism and sexism or minimize it or address it, right, then would somehow compromise the ability to do other types of AI innovation. I do think that sometimes this notion of if we're building responsibly, that means we slow down. So that means the other people get an advantage. I think they get a short-term advantage, but the long-time societal impacts do not outweigh those short-term gains in the first place. So I, I still think it goes back to the profit motivation. For example, you could have R&D and still not release models. That was what was happening for a very long time. It's because ChatGPT got 100 million <laughs> users in a, a very short time historic. And that shifted the market dynamics and the market power. That's what happened, right? So I don't completely buy some of these rationalizations after the fact. And then we had Meta release Llama too, right? And so now you have open source available to many people in a very dangerous way ahead of elections where we're getting more powerful systems. These agree. were choices that were made that didn't have to be, uh, it didn't have to go down this direction and you could still have those same arguments. Those choices, I believe, came back to how do we assert some type of market dominance or market opposition because we realize whoever has supposed supremacy with AI will hold a lot of power in the world. These tech companies could power one government or another, right? So even when you have people inside companies saying other nations might move forward, the companies themselves are not tied to individual nations. They got clients everywhere. That's true, but I, you could argue, and I think the people we talked to at the Western AI labs are worried about China building artificial general intelligence level systems faster than the U.S. is. But I totally agree. I mean, I think what we're, we're actually, I think what we're coming to is actually a deep agreement of it is really this this race for market dominance. And when market dominance was prior to ChatGPT launching, when it was just the race to develop internal capabilities, it was a slower, calmer race. When they published ChatGPT publicly and got to 100 million users in like uh, like two months, that changed the form that the incentive was. Where now it's about actually, if I don't release this thing that I've had in the lab to show the world that I also have a system that's as powerful as ChatGPT, because if they have 100 million users, people aren't going to switch back and forth between different big public AI systems. P businesses are going to start building. Right, so was that release because of China? No, no, no. So we agree. I think I think we agree that um, it was unwise 
to hit the gas pedal and, and set a new clock rate for releasing systems by publicly launching ChatGPT and integrating it into Bing and having Satya Nadella say, we want to make Google Dance. And all of that drove up this race because literally they got a huge stock market boost right, from, from dropping that stuff. What I'd love to see is how do we bring all of our communities together who care about all this going well for bias, for discrimination, for misinformation for democracies, and for bioweapons, and for some of the bigger cognition risks of, of our AGI, that we actually all want the same thing, which is to move at a pace that we can get this right, rather than move at a pace that we keep just shoving harms onto the balance sheet of society. The question is, are you willing to lose something? This is the question of power and privilege always, right? So it's very easy to pay lip service to inclusion, right? It's very easy to pay lip service to, we don't, who's going to say we want discrimination usually? I mean, dialogue has changed, right? You know, I think it really comes down to when it costs you something to do the thing that's better for society than the thing that is better for you as an individual or for you as a company. So that's where that global coordination does require regulations. I was at a UN-related event a few weeks ago, and Professor Virginia uh, Dingnam said something that I thought was really interesting because in that room, we were starting to have the false dichotomy of innovation versus guardrails, right? And she was saying, AI is like a car that hasn't gone under rigorous safety checks, being driven by a driver without a license on roads that are barely paved without even traffic lights, you know? And so back to some of what we've been discussing, it is up to governments and also up to people to agitate to say, no, we do not accept this <laughs> this wild, wild west that we're seeing. And the way in which you're describing the conversations within the tech companies absolutely shows why they are not the ones to lead this, because they want to be first. And they do not want to give up something that could potentially compromise that position. They have shareholders. <laughs> they have quarterly profits uh, to think about. And uh, it's I'm not seeing very long-term thinking right now. And sometimes you have to go outside of those who are incentivized for the short term, which also makes it difficult for governments right as well, because election cycles also lead to a lot of short-term thinking, what can be the quick gains made. So we're not going to change the fabric of society if we don't address power differentials and if nobody is willing to lose something. I, I really love that because like, wisdom so often is knowing when you should say no to something. Uh, our friend Mustafa Suleiman, who we just had at the podcast, the co-founder of DeepMind, says that in the age of AI, progress will be defined more by what we say no to than what we say yes to. I heard you say, you know, the release of Meta's Llama 2 open source is dangerous. And of course, after that came out, the United Arab Emirates released Falcon, uh, Mistral AI just released their open source. So now there's a, a race for more and more powerful open systems. And I'd imagine some of our listeners might say like, oh, it's surprising to hear you say that open source is 
dangerous, Dr. Joy, because isn't that like democratizing access to power? We should want to like get it into as many people's hands. It's not what I believe, but I love to hear your take on that because that's sort of what Mark Zuckerberg and Mark Andreessen, apparently just Marks, um, will make this kind of argument, and I think you'll have a very powerful rebuttal, and so I'd love to hear it. Overall, I remember learning Drupal when I was a kid, when I was a high schooler, Drupal open source uh, content management system. And then I built a little web development company off of that. And then that meant that I could make websites for all kinds of people, even had an opportunity to make a website for uh, Ethiopian embassy in a West African nation, blah, blah, blah. And I was doing this as a high school student. When I was an undergraduate at Georgia Tech, I led the development of mobile surveying tools uh, with the Carter Center for a project we were doing on neglected tropical diseases. And because of the open source nature of Android, we were actually able to build bespoke tools. At the time, Google Android did not come with an Amharic keyboard. And so because of the openness of that system, we were able to build the type of keyboard that was necessary, et cetera, load in the Amharic font, et cetera. Later on, when I talked to Google engineers who would have been part of those teams and I described what we did, right, you know, they didn't have the market incentive to do that. So do I believe in open source in terms of its power to democratize access to the tools of creation? Absolutely. Have I benefited from it? Yes. Has the rest of the software industry benefited from open source? Absolutely. But even with all of that, I think with AI capabilities, we have to be extremely careful. When it comes to data and consent and privacy, it would be one thing to open source data sets where people had agreed to even be part of those data sets in the first place. I dodged so many subpoenas while I was in grad school because big tech companies had scraped many face data sets without people's permission. And in areas where you had laws like BIPA, the Biometric Information and Privacy Act of Illinois, they actually had a case to be made and there were many uh, lawsuits filed. And so part of my pushback on what is being open sourced is, was there permission and consent in the first place, right? Because we are seeing the open sourcing of models that were built on, some would say, stolen data, but certainly data collected without consent and compensation. So it's one thing for me to open source something I built completely myself. It's another thing to open source something I built based on what I took, and now there's still lawsuits happening, and before we've even resolved that, now we are creating these chains of bias and discrimination. It's another thing for me to open source something where I have clarity about the risk and limitations. We've spent some time, right, in this conversation talking about the various harms that are introduced, and especially with these large language models being so large that there wasn't necessary vetting and accounting of what's even included in the first place, right? So I think it's one thing to share a meal where you know where the ingredients have been sourced versus inviting people to a table where you're like, no labels, I, look, good luck, I hope you don't get food poisoning, 
we're open sourcing, right? So I really think what is being open sourced? Who had a decision or a choice in the matter? Because I do feel in some ways, some companies are attempting to get a pass over the original sin, a sin I was a part of because it's literally how I learn computer vision. If the data is there, it's for the taking. This is when I was a grad student and I was doing the IRB process, uh, Institutional Review Board, right, to make sure that what we were doing was ethical. When it comes to human subjects research, there are additional steps that have to be taken. As I was going through the process, because I was doing computer vision research, I had an exception. It wasn't considered human subjects, even though I was using people's faces, right? And because it wasn't in a medical context that I was using it, I really didn't have to do more than just say that it had the exemption. And when I talked to my peers and older scholars, et cetera, people were just looking at me like, why would I make things harder? <laughs> but why are you asking all these questions? <laughs> you know, like get the data and go. This is like, this is just how we do it. But now there are many data sets that are being challenged because once people realize, oh, this data set I created has immense value. How do we know it has immense value? This company just raised $10 billion. Where are my data residuals, <laughs> you know? So on one hand, that's happening. And then you see open source, right? To And I do believe there are a lot of people who, from the general concept of open source, I support this idea that we don't want certain tools to only be in the hands of a few. And I do believe that overall, when you have many more minds working on various problems, you're likely to find more robust solutions. And I also believe that if you only had a few major tech companies, you know, in control of what's possible with the platform, it could be extremely constrained. That doesn't allow possibilities. So that, for example, if Google decides Amharic is not a priority language at that particular time in the development, it doesn't get done. And now the system is closed where you can't do anything about it. Coming back to the AI space, I think there are different ways of open sourcing and being thoughtful about it. I cannot say with what I saw with the release of Llama 2 and also where we are with the lack of regulations, that it was a responsible release. It's not in a context, right, where we've established the rules of the road. So for me, this is putting out the car that doesn't have the safety checks, where drivers don't have license, where we don't have rules of the road. Am I against vehicles? No. Am I against getting a point A to point B a little bit faster than what I could do walking in general? No. But I think this stage in the development of AI, because of where we are in actually safeguarding it, it was too soon. That's my perspective. One of the things we've, we've noticed is there's this um, schism between people who work more on AI bias, AI discrimination, AI ethics issues is kind of the common term of art, and then people who work on, say, AI safety, concerned about different catastrophic threats, whether they're biological, chemical, all the way to definitely more of the sci-fi ones, which not everybody believes. 
I'm curious, what do you think about this schism? Is there a schism? Does there need to be a schism? Because I think what I'm hearing you say over the last 30 minutes or so is we agree that we need some kind of top-down rules, you know, a driver's license for the car, safety checks for the car, test reviews, a safe road, traffic lights. And I think that's what we all want. And so I'm, I'm curious just to kind of go there and ask you what you think. About this notion of schism, it makes for good headlines. I've heard this, there are camps. We got AI safety on one end. We got AI ethics on the other hand. We got the doomers, the gloomers, all of these things. I think it makes for interesting headlines. And I see it less as a schism and more as a spectrum of concerns. I think there are immediate harms, emerging harms, and longer-term harms. And I think the way you address the longer-term harms is by attending to what is immediate. And so when I think, again, of existential risk, and I think of the campaign of Stop Killer Robots, that's been around for some time. What does it look like when we look at, some would say, the future of peace, some would say the future of war, right? What it looks like with putting in different types of AI capabilities with various sorts of uh, militaries. I think where I see a lot of frustration is the airtime that is given for the most extreme views and what some would call AI doomerism, right? This is the end of the world. Superintelligence will emerge. And we are here to warn you and say, even if we were part of creating these systems, uh, we told you. In most conversations I have that aren't internet-mediated conversations, but real conversations with most folks, even folks who would be identified within the AI safety community. And it might be because they're talking to me, (laughs) so they're changing what it is that they're saying there tends to be more of the, we do know we there are immediate harms. I think what has been very frustrating for Many people who look at AI bias and discrimination is when those harms are categorically placed as lesser. Like, sure, people could face discrimination or oppression, but to be honest, they've already been facing all of these things. And maybe what is more of a threat to some people is those who are used to being in power are now at risk of being marginalized by their own creation to then face the oppression that many other groups of people have dealt with for centuries, right? And so I think it's really thinking through the power positioning and who those narratives serve, because those narratives about existential risk when we're really talking about AI destroying the world, I think it's interesting how the way we're using language. When I think of X risks for AI, I think of the X coded, the people who are being harmed by AI systems because we can help them now. We don't have to wait until there are trillions of future humans, right? We, What does it say about us as a society if we don't help the people who are drowning in front of us saying we hope to one day help centuries down somebody who could hypothetically drown? And this isn't to say we shouldn't be forward-looking, but I do think we have, one, an opportunity that's a real opportunity to mitigate more of these immediate harms. I think about Portia Woodruff, who was arrested 
for a carjacking, eight months pregnant, sitting in a holding cell. No one's jacking a car eight months pregnant, right? She reported having contractions, and then she had to be rushed to a hospital after finally being released, you know? And then just that disregard of life, because this happened in 2023, Detroit Police Department, same police department that falsely arrested Robert Williams in 2022. So I absolutely see the frustration of saying, we're talking about all of these hypothetical risks And we're not seeing acute known risk being addressed. And I absolutely think that is a mismatch of priority. Can we walk and chew gum at the same time? Absolutely think we can think about acute risk, near-term risk, emerging risk uh, for sure. I don't agree with the doomerism type of framing of existential risk, but there are others who do. It's when that kind of framing takes away resources, takes away regulatory attention from actually building the safety checks, getting the driver's license, and putting the streetlights on, which are things we we can do. Those things are hard, and they require compromise, and they require negotiation, but overall... It's not that Google wins or Anthropic wins, etc. It's that humanity gets to win. Dr. Joy, I thought this whole conversation was just incredible. Thank you so much for coming on Your Undivided Attention. Thank you so much for having me. Dr. Joy Bolamwini's book is called Unmasking AI, My Mission to Protect What is Human in a World of Machines, and it's out now. And before we go, we wanted to play you Dr. Joy's spoken word poem that she wrote, which touches on a lot of the themes we've talked about today, The title of the poem is Unstable Desire. Prompted to competition, where be the guardrails now? Threat in sight will might make right. Hallucinations taken as prophecy. Destabilized on a middling journey to outpace, to open chase, to claim supremacy, to reign indefinitely. Haste and paste, control-altering deletion, Unstable desire remains undefeated. The fate of AI still uncompleted. Responding with fear, responsible AI beware. Prophets do snare, people still dare. To believe our humanity is more than neural nets and transformations of collected muses. More than data and errata, more than transactional diffusions. Are we not transcendent beings bound in transient forms? Can this power be guided with care, augmenting delight alongside economic destitution? Temporary band-aids cannot hold the wind when the task ahead is to transform the atmosphere of innovation. The android dreams entice, the nightmare schemes of vice. Your Undivided Attention is produced by the Center for Humane Technology, a nonprofit working to catalyze a humane future. Our senior producer is Julia Scott. Kirsten McMurray and Sarah McRae are our associate producers. Sasha Fegan is our managing editor. Mixing on this episode by Jeff Sudakin. Original music and sound design by Ryan and Hayes Holiday. And a special thanks to the whole Center for Humane Technology team for making this podcast possible. You can find show notes, transcripts, and much more at humanetech.com. And if you made it, all the way here. 
Let me give one more thank you to you for giving us your undivided attention.